Okay, we're reading Genesis 3, 1 through 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, Who is this? What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for bringing each one of us here tonight. Um, for reasons we may not know, um, but I thank you for this place that we all get to gather together. Um, I thank you for a community to come to, uh, to come to whether we're broken, whether we've had a good day or a bad one. Um, I thank you for all the people here, um, and I thank you for the work that you're doing through each and every one of us on this campus. Um, God, I pray that you open our eyes to you on this campus and um, encourage us to love others well and to bring them to know you. Um, I pray for our weeks. I pray that you heal any anxieties and fears in the room tonight and that you bring us back to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, welcome back. Uh, if this is your first time, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry, and uh, I'm the campus minister here. My wife is Liza. I have three kids, Shelby, Annie Clark, which you'll hear plenty about uh, this semester. Keep going. Uh, what we're doing this semester is we're walking through a topic rather than a book of the Bible like we usually do, and we're looking to see what the Bible tells us about relationships, because relationships are central to where, actually, we always are, but especially in college. And we're just considering how we can find healing in Jesus and see the wisdom that scriptures bring in our relationships, whether that's friendship, dating, marriage, wherever you, uh, you find yourself. So let me, uh, let me pray. Father, we've already heard your word read, and what the scriptures tell us is that in order for us to hear, uh, in order for us to see, uh, we need your spirit. And so um, we're weak tonight, uh, we're needy. Uh, we are full of things, honestly, that we're ashamed of. And uh, would you be full of grace and kindness tonight and show us Jesus in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to tell you, start off by telling you a story from my friend Matt, uh, actually about his friend Charles. This might actually, some of you might have been through a similar scenario, but it was Charles, it's his sophomore year at college, and uh, he had uh, become friends with this girl named Amy. Uh, you know how it kind of goes. They'd, uh, they'd hung out a bunch their freshman year. Charles was always kind of happened to be showing up at the same places that Amy did. And 
uh, kind of manipulated lunchtime so that he showed up at the union when she was there. And, and as their friends started hanging out more and more, Charles seems pretty sure Amy was into him, you know, but, but not sure. And then uh, finally, like he and a couple of his friends and Amy and some of her friends, they went to see a movie. And Charles, of course, uh, made sure that somehow he sat right next to Amy. You know how that happens. And uh, so he's, uh, they're sitting there, they're watching the movie, and uh, he's just kind of nervous because uh, he's just kind of wondering, you know, where are we? What's this that's going on? And in a bold mood of courage, right, he takes his hands and he places it on top of Amy's, right? And Amy doesn't move it, right? And so, you know, he turns to exhilaration, right? His palms start sweating, they kind of interlock hands. And, uh, and so, you know, Al, this movie's great. He watches for the next 20 minutes, you know, imagines the wedding. And then, uh, and then he, it's a true story, he leans over to whisper something to Amy. And he notices that on the other side of Amy is one of his good friends. And he is also holding her hand. <laughs> and so at that moment, he realizes, I completely misread this. He goes to, like, deflation, depression. And in that, like two-hour time, and some of you have experienced this, he went from nervousness, fear, exhilaration, joy, betrayal, rejection, anger, all in like two hours. And I just want you to think about that moment. It's funny, but it really is in that two-hour window, that's the reality of relationships. That there's joy, there's pain. There's excitement, there's frustration. There's, um, ready, I'm going to go for it. There's from you're my, 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 my lover, to I forgot you existed. See what I did there, Taylor Swift? Uh, and so last week, what we did... Thank you. RUF stands for Are You Relevant? We remain very culturally savvy. Um, but what we did last week is we looked at Genesis 1, and I tried to appeal to you that God designed us in His image, which means we're made for relationships. That's why they're a place of life and joy. But we also know that they're a place of hurt and mess and pain. And so we're looking at Genesis 3 to try to get a sense of why in the world do relationships hurt so badly? Why, how can they be both joyful and painful? And Genesis 3 is, the, this is what the Scripture teaches. It's the birthplace of every bit of relational hurt, whether that's abuse, racism, gossip, distrust. It's all right here. All right, so three things about just the messiness of relationships. First, we're going to look at the lie that creates the mess. Second, the result of the mess. And then third, the healing of it. Okay, the lie, the result, and the healing. So first, the lie. Okay, according to the Scriptures, this is when sin, when evil enters the world, this is when everything breaks. Everything goes wrong. So what happens? You have Adam and Eve, the first two human beings created by God, and we saw last week they were made in His image. They are living under the full acceptance of God's delight and love. Nothing is wrong. And then the serpent shows up. And we find out later in the Scriptures that the serpent is Satan himself, the author of evil. And he starts talking to the woman. And look what he says in verse 1. He says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we didn't read Genesis 2 tonight. But if you read what the serpent says, it kind of sounds right. But there's actually a twist. Because what God tells Adam back in Genesis 2 is He says this, You may eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you cannot eat. What God emphasizes is, I've given you every single tree but this one. 
But the serpent comes along and he makes this very subtle twist, right? And he says, did God say you can't have any tree? Any of them? And see, what Satan is doing, he's very subtly distorting the character of God before Eve. Right? He's saying, hey, what's, what's up with God, Adam and Eve? Like, why is he forbidding you something? Is he some kind of withholding God? And he tries to get Adam and Eve to focus not on all that God has given them, but on the one thing that he holds back. Why? Because the serpent knows that if he can get Adam and Eve to begin to question God's character, to question his goodness, to question his love for them, if that lie begins to be believed, then rebellion happens. And we know this is true. We know that, that, that the way that you receive something from someone depends on your perceive, the perceived character of that person, right? Think about, uh, just think about, the, let's say, the way that you receive a hug, okay? If you are sad and a good friend offers you a hug, you receive it, and it brings comfort. If you're sad and a random shady-looking person offers you a hug... You say, no, that's creepy. (laughs) Why? Because one person, you know the intent and the character behind your friend. The other person, the intent seems to be just creepy weirdness. But the same thing was offered. The only difference was your perception of the character of the person offering it. And see, Eve here, she begins to question the character of God. God who has given her everything who's actually sustaining her right now in Adam and is loving them. And she starts wondering, I don't know. Does God really want what's best for me? Maybe what He commands is actually a way of Him oppressing me and manipulating me and keeping me in poverty. And maybe what He forbids is actually good for me. And once they distort the character of God, once they buy into the lie that God is not good, rebellion's inevitable. Because God's God's law seems ridiculous and silly unless you understand the character behind the law is God and He's good. And so here's how the lie of the serpent, I would say, still works on a relational level. Right? We're talking about relationships this semester. So think about friendships. And think about jealousy and bitterness, all that stuff that hurts relationships. How does that begin? Well... We compare ourselves to other people and to their situations. And this is what you think. She has the charm. He has the connections. She has, uh, he has, uh, she has the boyfriend. He has the social personality. Everything falls her way, right? That guy gets everything. And the jealousy and bitterness begins to form. And what's under that, even if we never say it, is this. The Lord has been so good to him or her but He hasn't given it to me. If I had those things, I would be okay. I would be fine. And here's the deal. It's impossible to love and care, someone, care for somebody that you're jealous of. Why? Because you want what they have. Which means I don't want to love you and serve you. I want to take what you have. And it's just the serpent lie. How often do we ignore certain people or distance ourselves from others or overtly tear other people down because that's what will ingratiate me to the acceptance of another group? And that's just better than being alone. 
And just feel what's beneath that. That there is no way that if God is good, and if He's being good to me right now, there's no way that I could be lonely. Either He doesn't care about me, or worse, He's holding out on me, so I've got to take things into my own hands. I've got to figure this out myself. And I'll look out for me, and I'll buy into whatever divisions of cool, not cool there is, and I'll just go according to it. And realize, like, goodness, we have, we've institutionalized this thing in rush, in giving bids. This, like, I'll tear down other people, I'll keep others out, so as to get my tribe in. Because I don't really believe that the Lord is good and He'll take care of my people and He'll take care of me. So I've got to do it. And many of your conscience gets burdened by this. And that's a good thing. I'll tell you that. Or think about, think about an unhealthy dating relationship. Some of you in this room probably are in one and you kind of know it and your friends definitely know it. But you won't end it. Because deep down at the core is this. You doubt God's goodness. You believe the lie of the serpent. You think if this relationship ends, the Lord isn't really going to sustain me. He won't really provide, with me, provide for me what I need, so I've got to hold on to it. And so first, what I'm asking you to see is that the lie that opened the door for sin to enter the world is, is still the lie that produces all the mess in our own life to make us doubt that God is actually good and loving, that He's not trustworthy. So second... What result does that bring? This second point, okay, one of my friends, Ricky Jones, totally stolen from him, and probably a lady named Brene Brown too, if you've heard of her, okay? There's so much packed in this chapter. The results of what sin brought, you could go a thousand different directions, but here's, because we're talking about relationship with each other, here's the one thing I want to focus on. When relationship with God breaks, everything else breaks because He's reality, He's life itself, but because we're talking about the hurt and dysfunction in our relationship with each other, Here's the result. The result is shame. This is what's described in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you happen to be here last week, or you're familiar with Genesis 2, when everything was right and everything was good, Adam and Eve, they're described as this, naked and unashamed. Think about that picture. Adam and Eve were completely and utterly exposed in every way before God and before each other, and they were utterly free. Because there was, there was nothing but delight and love and freedom and acceptance because there was nothing wrong. They knew the Lord delighted in them. They knew that they accepted each other. But once sin and guilt enters this world and things aren't right, Adam and Eve all of a sudden become aware of their nakedness. Their eyes are opened. And for the first time, this is, this is what's so sad. For the first time, they think, something's wrong with me. Something's not right. And so from this point on, nakedness in the Bible actually becomes a symbol of shame. So what is shame? Some of you have heard me tell this story before. Best, it's the best illustration I've ever got. A friend of mine, when he was in junior high... He's out cutting his grass very quickly on a Saturday morning, like most junior high boys do, just trying to get it done. And the lawnmower clogs up, and it was one of those right where it feeds into a bag. So he takes the bag off, and he's trying to do it as quickly as he can so he can get back to his Saturday. He reaches in, pulls some grass out, mower's still going, reaches farther in, feels something hit his hand, pulls it out, blood everywhere, right? He severed like uh, a third of two of his fingers. And he says, the first thing that he feels 
is not pain, the first thing he thinks is, oh my gosh, how could it be so stupid? And he goes running in, screaming to his mom. His mom takes him to the hospital right They go to the ER. They bandage it up. He says when he comes home that night, he's sitting in his bed on a Saturday night thinking about going to school on Monday, and he starts weeping. And he, he says, do you know why I wept, Brian? I was like, oh, the pain? He said, no, Oxycontin. It's awesome, right? <laughs> he, he, said, uh, he said, there was no pain. He said, I started imagining walking to school in eighth, in eighth grade and having to tell people what happened and knowing that everybody would laugh at me. And that, he said, that was a greater pain than actually a third of his finger being chopped off. That is shame. Shame is this, is this belief, the functioning reality, that there's something about me or part of me that if you were to see it, you would not want to connect with me, you would not want a relationship with me, you would actually laugh at me and reject me. That, because, that if you knew the real me, you would know I'm unworthy of love, you would not want to be around, it, around me and you'd scorn me and reject me. That is shame. Shame dominates us. It's been around since Genesis 3. Wherever there's guilt before God, there's shame before God in each other. We all know it. Because there's a gap. We all know this. There's a gap between what I know I should be and who I really am. That gap gets filled filled with shame. So here's the question. How does shame, if we're talking about relationship with each other, affect relationships with each other? How does it bring so much damage? Brene Brown world's leading research on shame, okay? She says the first thing that we do with our shame is we actually hide it. We cover it. And and look what Adam and Eve do, right? It says when their eyes were opened and they realized something is wrong, what do they do? Instead of coming to the Lord in their nakedness, in their shame, and being with each other, they hide. They hide in the trees from God and then they cover themselves with fig leaves, to kind of make this like loincloth. And this is the relational dysfunction. Adam and Eve, they still want to be seen. We all still want to be seen. We all still want to be loved. But they know that at this point there's something wrong with me and because shame is so powerful and our fear of being exposed is so real that I think if you see the real me, I will be laughed at and rejected. So what, what do they do? They put up a fig leaf and they hide behind it. And they say, right, Adam's saying, don't look at me, look at the fig leaf. Because if you look at me, you'll reject me. So look at this fig fig leaf and maybe you'll accept me. Maybe you'll love me. And that's what we all do. We all have shame. The question just is, what what is your fig leaf? Like, what are you covering with? Some of us, we we really do. We cover with spiritual activity. If we can be at RUF, if we can be like involved in multiple campus ministries, uh, if I can use the right Christian jargon, if I can keep up appearances, then what we think is nobody will see the real me. Nobody will ask me the hard questions. And I might confess things in general like pride or something like that because that's acceptable, but no one will know who I really am. It's just a fig leaf. I hold up this religious Christian activity and I say, look at this, look at this. But what happens is nobody, people relate to the, to the spiritual activity, the spiritual you, which isn't the real you or the real me. And here's the deal. You know religious activity is a fig leaf if it wears you out, not gives you rest. Or some of us try to cover by just like perfecting one area of our life so well that if you see that, 
I can hide behind that perfection, that perfect fig leaf. I think I've shared this before, but my recurring nightmare, okay, you know, like in elementary school, it's like you walk into class naked or something, right? I don't have that one anymore. My recurring nightmare, it really is this. I probably have it once a month. That I walk in on Wednesday nights to RUF, and it's about time for me to come up here, and I cannot find my sermon notes. And I'm panicking, right? And it's always weird what happens in nightmares, right? Everything's normal. I'm like running around, and like I'm telling Isaac to keep playing, and nobody's noticing me. <laughs> but here's my question. Why is that my recurring nightmare? Why is that my deep fear? Do you know why? Because what I think is if I can perfect this thing called teaching... Okay, and you only see my teaching, then you won't really see the real mess I am. You won't see the stuff behind the teaching. And so I just want to perfect that because I can hide behind it. And some of you, you just, you're working so hard to perfect your image as the smart one or the funny one or the social one or the beautiful one or the one who never cracks and always has it together. I don't know. But it's that knowledge that I'm not who I should be And so I'm going to perfect this one area and hide behind it, and maybe they'll love me. I had a student one time years ago tell me this. He said, in high school, I had no friends. So I became a different person. Said that people would like me. He was a senior in college. He said, I've continued to be that person for the rest of my life, and I can't do it anymore because I don't even know who I am. And I bet most of you can relate to that. And see, here's why it kills relationships. Because all the covering, all the hiding, what ends up happening is people relate to the fig leaf. Your cover. Instead of actually you. That's not their fault. That's your fault. That's my fault. But then what you end up being is more alone and more isolated. Because I realize nobody knows me. Shame always wants to isolate you and keep you from relationships. But the other side is this. Brene Brown says this, if you don't cover your shame, you will actually try to numb it. You'll try to numb the feelings of it. Make it go away by deadening your senses so I don't feel it. And do you know what the oldest numbing trick there is in the world is? It's called alcohol. Do do y'all know what beer is? I'm just kidding. Uh, That's a joke. You can laugh. You can laugh. Uh, Look, alcohol, it's a good thing. It's a gift from God. It's what the Bible says. But overconsumption of alcohol, you know what it does? It lets your inhibitions down. In other words, it deadens the feelings of shame. Here's the deal. It doesn't heal it. It just deadens the feelings of it. Now look, this is what is behind the, so much of the drunkenness on campus. And whatever. Instead of trying to like find the exact line of like when am I actually drunk or whatever, here's what I'd ask you to boldly admit to yourself. You don't like yourself. You're not comfortable with yourself in social settings because sober reality is too hard. And that awkwardness, that shame that I feel, whether it's just a deep uneasiness with yourself, I don't know. But alcohol numbs it. I feel better about myself. I feel freer. And now I'm okay in this setting. Drunkenness makes you feel free and unashamed, but it's not bringing healing. That's how it works. And look, because the real me and real relationships are just too hard and too painful, we can numb through hundreds of things. It can be through eating, it can be through narcotics, it can be through medication. Anything is better than my shame. 
We can even numb it by creating fantasy worlds and fantasy personas, right? This is, again, I'm just, I'm just exposing all my shame to y'all tonight, all right? So, uh, this is what Ricky Jones talked about this, and I was like, he's describing me. Like, there have been periods in my life where I really have created fantasy worlds almost behind, like, group me's and text groups, all right? Because, here's why. Face-to-face, if I sit down with you, it's really hard to be funny all the time. It's really hard to actually care about you appropriately, and if you're sad, to actually be sad with you. It's hard to know what's always to say face-to-face. But if I can hide behind kind of like text groups, it's amazing. I can always say the perfect witty thing. I can always kind of control and manipulate my response to kind of be sad with you. I can always be coolly unaffected. And here's the truth. Like the kind of cool group me persona I create, I just like that person better. I want to live as that person and not as the real me in a real broken world. And some of you escape like that into fantasy worlds like me. Others of you go into video games, whatever. But whatever you can construct to numb the feeling of being you in the real world will turn to it. And lastly, here's my... Here's my shot at Ole Miss culture, okay? Year three for me here. And I went to school here. I think we numb it at Ole Miss through, busy, through busyness. Because as long as I have things on my plate all the time, things I'm involved with, things I'm planning to do next weekend, from the moment that I wake up until I go to sleep exhausted, here's what happens. I never have to feel who I am or let others in. I just don't have to. And so here... The constant mantra of I'm so busy and exhausted, here's what it's saying. I'm so full of shame. I can't stop. And so we numb it through busyness. And here's the scary thing that Brene Brown points out. You can't isolate what you numb. If if you numb shame, you will actually numb joy, sadness, fear, anger, all the inside-out characters, all right? And what you begin to realize is that makes relationships impossible. You cannot love without sadness and joy and all those things. Because you can't isolate what you know. So, the lie questions God's character, which creates this mess of relationships. And then the shame that follows means that we hide from each other. And we numb, we numb ourselves. And so we end up isolating ourselves from each other. And we live just kind of in caverns by ourselves. And instead of moving towards one another and caring for each other and loving each other, we just remain isolated. And look, I realize like what we're talking about is it's heavy. Maybe this isn't cool to talk about on week two. And I shouted like, I'm so shameful and nobody laughed, which makes me nervous. Uh, but like, I'm just going to say it's, it's okay if it's heavy. Because here's the truth of Jesus. Against the heaviness of our shame and the reality of it, that's where you'll find the healing, deep cleansing work of Jesus. Not by denying it, not by running from it, but by seeing it. And so look, I'm going to land the plane pretty quickly because we're going to talk a lot about this next week. But here's the healing, okay? You see hints of it in our passage. But God, it's amazing. They rebel against Him. They want nothing to do with Him. And what does God do? He comes after them. He calls them back to Himself. He, con- he continues to be good, though we distrust Him. He's calling them out of their, their hiding, and He addresses their shame. He doesn't ignore it, right? He says, who told you that you were naked? 
He's pursuing them in their shame. He's inviting them to come. Come to me. Trust me with it. And I want you to see, this is amazing. Almost as soon as they come out of hiding, he does two things. He makes a promise in verse 15. He says, one day there's going to be a seed. There's going to be someone that's going to come born of a woman that's going to crush the lie of the serpent. It's going to crush his head. And then he says this. And then he does this. He covers their shame. He takes animal skins that will do a much better job than fig leaves of actually protecting them and covering them. And here's what's interesting. God had told them if, if, they, if they rebel, if they sin, they will die. And what's interesting is they didn't die that day. But something did die. Some animals. And what the Lord is saying is this. The way I'm going to make sure the serpent is crushed, the way that I'm going to cover your shame, is it's going to be through the death of something else. Someone else. And over and over in the Old Testament, if you read it, like, the Old Testament is just full of shame. And, and God keeps pursuing people. And then when you get to the New Testament, God the Son comes to this earth. And you ready? He's a seed born of a woman. And it's very interesting as you watch Jesus. He goes around healing people and loving people. And He's always perfect. He's got nothing to be ashamed of. He's the only person that ever existed. And people's reaction to Him, do you know what it is? The religious leaders start mocking Him, laughing at Him. Some people call Him a drunkard. They laugh that he comes from a shameful place like Lazarus, uh, like, like Nazareth. And then he's arrested and he's falsely accused. And if you really, if you look at Mark 15, once in the religious court, once in the Roman court, they, they tell you he's mocked and belittled and scorned and rejected and finally condemned. It's like the gospel writers want you to feel something about Jesus, that he's actually enduring shame. And then every gospel writer tells you this. It's really interesting. That Jesus is crucified naked. Completely naked. There is no loincloth like the picture showed because it's it's too painful to see. And you know what happens as He's crucified for the world to see? People actually offer Him wine to numb the pain and He refuses it. And as He stands there and he's, He's laughed at and He's mocked, it makes you say, what in the world? This is the God-man. The one person who's ever lived who has nothing to be ashamed of, yet when he is fully seen, people are laughing at him and shaming him. Why is he bearing shame? It must not be his shame. Correct. It's my shame. It's your shame. He's wearing it. So that, it, so that you don't have to stand in it. He's removing our shame by bearing it Himself. This is how the serpent's lie gets exposed as a lie. Look at the cross. If you doubt God is good, which I think we all do at some points, look at the cross. God is so good that He came to this earth and suffered and died for me in my place. That's how good He is. How is my shame removed? Jesus does it. Look at the cross. He's rejected and condemned my my man and He is rejected by His heavenly Father because He substitutes Himself for me so that I can be clean and righteous and seen and loved and naked and unashamed before God. Jesus takes what I deserve, condemnation, guilt, and shame, and gives me what He deserved, which is love, righteousness, acceptance. That's what happens at the cross. So look, 
volunteer. There's um, y'all heard me reference this book before. First week, so I just always try to go with the best illustrations I got. Um, there's this book called uh, Letters to an Unborn Child by a guy named David Ireland. It's worth a read. And uh, it's, the reason that it's called that is because he had a uh, he had an incurable disease when his wife was pregnant with his first son, and he realized. Uh, my son's probably never going to know me. And so he writes these letters mainly to let his son know how awesome his wife slash his son's mom is. And so this disease that he has is essentially like Lou Gehrig's disease, which if you've ever seen it, it's awful. It just, de-heal- it just debilitates your body. And he, there's this one chapter where he talks about um, as, as his condition was getting worse and worse, uh, he said he, just, he hated taking showers because he couldn't do it. And so anytime he had a shower, right, his wife would come in, or he'd always call her your mom. Your mom would come in, and she would bathe me and clean me, and then she'd set me on a chair in front of a mirror. And he said, that moment, whenever I looked in the mirror, here's what I would see. I would see my concave chest, right, that had become decrepit. I would see that my head would kind of go to the side because I couldn't even hold it up anymore. I would see my body just withered. And he said, I would just become disgusted with myself. And he said, every single time that I looked at myself in the mirror and became disgusted with myself, your mom would come up to me and she'd say, stop it. Stop admiring yourself in the mirror. And she'd laugh. And then about an hour later, she'd come back. And she would put my hand in her lap. And she would look me in the eyes and say this, David, you're handsome. You're the most handsome man I know. And I love you. And then he said this, Somehow, because of our shared experience over the years throughout this world and all that she had been through with me, I actually knew that she really meant it. Look, this is what the healing work of Jesus offers you. He says, come to me as you are. Entrust yourself full of sin and shame to the crucified and risen Jesus. And here's what you'll find. He's not ashamed of you. He's not. He's taken it. He's covered you with himself and he says, I see you. I see you as you really are. And I treasure you. And I think you're beautiful. And I'll cover you with my forgiveness and perfection. Look, that's where the the healing will not come from denial. It will not come from covering or numbing it. And the serpent's lie, here's how you know the serpent's lie is still at work tonight. It's anything that's telling you, "Mm, that sounds too good to be true. The serpent always says, no, no, no. Clean yourself up. Make yourself better. And then come to God. It's a lie. All that saying is God isn't that good. And He is. He is full of grace. He's full of mercy. It's the only way to come to Him. He says, let me take it on the cross. You have no shame and I'm unashamed of you. It's like the song I've been listening to. It's the the head and the heart song, right? See you through my eyes. If you really listen to it, it's the gospel. It's a woman who's saying, I'm so damaged, there's no way. And what does the guy say? This could be so easy if you could see you through my eyes. Jesus is saying, receive me and start learning to see yourself through my eyes. Does that mean the loneliness immediately goes away? No. But it can keep you from doing whatever it takes to get immediate relief. And you start trusting Him in the loneliness, in the sadness, in the depression, in the shame, because you realize He wants to be with you. And I'm telling you, it begins to bring healing. And I'll actually send you into relationships with other people to where you're a safe place to be vulnerable, to be honest, to be trusting one another. My question is, do you know this Jesus? The one who substituted himself for you to take away shame so that you could see you through his eyes.
and see that he finds you beautiful. That's an offer. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those things that just sounds too good to be true because we're all here tonight. We're deeply aware that there's this large gap between who we should be and who we actually are. There's a lot of shame in this room. Some because of what we've done. Some, honestly, because of the awful things that have been done to us. And that wasn't our fault. So would you work tonight? Would you bring us to see that you came to crush the lie of the serpent? Would you help us to see that you are good? And would you bring us to entrust ourselves to you and then to be a community of RUF that reflects Jesus, uh, that is a safe place to be vulnerable? In your son's name I pray. Amen.